You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Put down that cupcake for a second. That's right. And by the way, you have to unclench your fingers. Don't worry, nobody's going to take it. Although, after this show, you may not want to pick it up again. Now, if that little piece of heaven is homemade... I bet it's delicious and I would really like one, especially if salted caramel has been anywhere near it. But if you're the cook of this cupcake, you know just what ingredients went into it. A couple cups of sugar cascaded into the mixing bowl, I bet, and that was just for the frosting. But if you weren't this chef, well, you may not know exactly how much saccharin stuff was incorporated into that gourmet cupcake. And even if cupcakes are not your thing or cronuts, or giant cookies, or Twinkies. Well, facts are that sugar is being poured into all sorts of foods with a gusto of Niagara Falls after a rainstorm. And that's particularly noteworthy if you're partial to... Ah, 64 ounces of a carbonated caffeine kick to the head. This should get me through breakfast. Sugar is everywhere you find processed food. And soda, soda, pop, it takes the chocolate-covered cake of turbo sugar overload. Seven teaspoons of sugar in a 12-ounce can. But who stops at 12 ounces? Excuse me, sir, I believe you said unlimited refills? The average American consumes 22 teaspoons of sugar over the course of... It must be a month. No. Surely over the course of a week... No, in a day. Oh, my. 22 teaspoons a day. What a country. <laughs> More sweetened tea, sir. Uh, yes, please. Might I also request of you a scone with clotted cream and jam? And if you want to feast your eyes on the average daily consumption of sugar, well, just take a small clear plastic bag and pour in 22 teaspoons of the sweet stuff. Hang on, I have both right here. Give me that. Wow, it's like holding a bean bag. Now imagine eating it. Mm-mm. But usually you're not aware of consuming those 22 teaspoons because they're hidden in processed food. And by the way, honey and syrup are forms of sugar too, of course. So you add it all up and you, like most Americans, are getting a hefty saccharin surplus toot sweet. But so what? Sugary foods, they're delicious. Warm chocolate cookies and milk, maple syrup over pancakes. Occasionally indulging our sweet tooth is just a part of enjoying life. Well, you could say we've turned an occasional indulgence into a national pastime. Look around. Americans are having health problems. According to the National Institutes of Health, 70% of adults are overweight or obese, and one in six children is obese. The incidence of metabolic syndrome diseases, diabetes, high cholesterol, it's on the rise. But the question is, if you were to round up the principal suspects behind our health crisis, is the ringleader really sugar? You can accuse me all you want, Kappa, but nothing will stick. <laughs> there, it'll stick now. Uh, can we get a mop in room 2A? We'll look at the growing debate about sugar. Some say the truth is bitter. The sweet stuff is making us very sick. But not everyone has come to that conclusion. I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak. And this is our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. Skeptic check. Got a sweet truth? Oh, and you can finish that cupcake now. We know that sugar isn't good for us. I mean, I grew up hearing that too many sweets would spoil my dinner and give me tooth decay. But could sugar's effect on us be even worse than we thought? 
These days, researchers are concerned about our sugar consumption. We'll hear their arguments in a moment. But first, what is sugar? Hey, you call it sugar? I call it a shelf full of sweeteners. There are more of them than hairy backs at the Jersey Shore. So let me fill you in. Here's your coffee, Al. Oh, thanks. To begin with, you got your monosaccharides. These are your one-molecule sugars. They're basically a bunch of atoms hanging out together to form a single molecule. About as simple as Monday's crossword. Carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. You learned it in the eighth grade, C6H12O6. These simple sugars, monosaccharides, include some very popular sugars. More popular than Shirley here at Nick's Coffee Shop. Hey! (laughs) What? It's true. So you got glucose, fructose, and galactose for starters. Glucose, now that's the basic sugar in plants and animals. The boys in the industry, they call it dextrose, but whatever for that. Glucose is what your cells need to survive. When we talk blood sugar, we're talking glucose. Then there's fructose. You find it in fruit. It doesn't rhyme with fruit, but you want it to. It's the really sweet stuff like uh, cane sugar and honey. Yes? Uh, No, I was just talking over here. You ever gonna order over here? I could use a little more cream, sure. And where was I? Oh, galactose. Well, it's kind of esoteric, known as milk sugar or... Here you go, big spender. Cream. Lactose, and thank you. Okay, but then you got your disaccharides, two-molecule sugars, like your double date. For instance, there's maltose from barley. Uh, That one's complicated, so let's move on. Uh, Okay, another disaccharide, sucrose. Sucrose is a molecule of fructose and glucose, and sucrose is what's sitting in your sugar bowl waiting for your coffee spoon. And I'm still waiting for my spoon, Cheryls. Sorry. And yeah, there are plenty more oses in the sugar world, like ribose and deoxyribose, making up DNA, and cellulose, which is the building block of plants. And let us not forget the filler and cheap milkshakes. Be right back. Glucose, lactose, fructose, maltose, ribose, dextrose. Maybe we're thinking your little verbose. Hey, honey, I just like to sweet talk you. Now give me a little sugar. So is that particular group of carbohydrates public enemy number one? Some people say yes. One person who has taken an unwavering stand in this debate is Robert Lustig, an endocrinologist at the University of California, San Francisco. And he says that sugar isn't just bad for us, it's a poison when consumed in high doses. And he singled out one form of sugar in particular. It's in fruits, and it's what makes so many processed foods super sweet and delicious fructose. I am only talking about fructose-containing compounds because when you talk about added sugar, that's the only way to add it. You can't add glucose or galactose. That's not the issue. The issue is fructose-containing compounds, which is what's in the sweet stuff, the crystallized sugar, the cane sugar, beet sugar, the high-fructose corn syrup. That's what's been added, and that's where the danger is. And fructose is sweet, and it's also found Very in sweet. it's also found in fruits, right? Yes, it's the same sugar that's found in fruit, and it's the same reason that we like to eat fruit because it is sweet. The difference is the amount of fructose in any given piece of fruit is commensurate and proportional to the amount of fiber contained in that fruit, and the fiber reduces the rate of absorption of any given sugar, including fructose, so that your liver doesn't get overwhelmed by it. And that mitigates the negative effects. Now, I'd like to talk more um, and look more closely at how fructose is metabolized in the body. But first of all, I brought you some groceries. I took the liberty of doing some grocery shopping. All right. It's not an endless bag. Do I get to keep them? If if you want to keep them. It depends depends what they are. You can imagine. Let's pull that bag. Um, I wonder if you can pull them out and you can give me just a very brief what you see. I'm sure you'll have a visceral reaction to some of them. Oh, yes. I've already had a visceral reaction. Okay. What did you just pull? First of all, we're, we're holding Fruit Loops here. And Fruit Loops is spelled F-R-O-O-T. That's because there's no fruit in them. And the other thing is that this has 12 grams of sugar, 41% sugar. But Fruit Loops isn't even bad because it's only number 10 on the list of uh, sugary cereals. Number one is Kellogg's Honey Smacks at 56% sugar. So you can see that eight out of the top 10 cereals, more than half of their weight is sugar. Okay, try grabbing so, something else in all there. All right, let's see what egg. else we got in here. Uh, well, oh, there's the ever ubiquitous Coca-Cola. I think we'll save that for the end. All right, so here's a three-seed bread. It's 100% whole grain. It actually looks like it might actually be 
whole grain. But let's take a quick look at the side here. Where is the, ah, so there's the nutrition is, facts okay. on the back. It says sugar's three grams. Um, now the question is, do you need sugar to make bread? And the answer is, well, you actually do need a little bit to proof the yeast, but after that you don't. Now this happens to have boatloads of fiber. It's got four grams of dietary fiber, and you can actually see the nuts and the seeds in this bread. So I would not uh, suggest that this bread was particularly problematic. But not all breads are the same, and breads Absolutely. are also a food item where you can find lots of sugar packed in. Oh, you bet. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, a lot of breads have a significant amount of added sugar that really is not there for any reason other than to make you buy more. I want to keep going with this, but is the goal to get rid of sugar altogether? I mean, no, this is pretty healthy not. bread. Okay, no. The goal is not to get rid of sugar. The goal is to reduce the total consumption to levels that we used to have. Now, going back back on the savanna 10,000 years ago or no, even 100 no. years I th ago. I maybe. think we can I think we can even go back to the amount of sugar that we were consuming even 30 years ago. Mm. Uh, in 1823, we consumed the equivalent of about four pounds of sugar per year per person. By uh, 1900, we were up to about 10 pounds. By 1977, we were up to about 40 to 50 pounds. Currently, we are at 130 pounds. If we brought our consumption down by two-thirds, we could get back to where we should be and chronic metabolic disease would virtually disappear. Let's see if any of these other items in here, this is not an endless bag, so let's see what else you have. And then we have an apple, a Granny Smith apple to be exact. Now that apple has fructose in it? Yes, it does, but it has loads of fiber. Okay. So I have no problem with people consuming Granny Smith apples. In fact, they can do it as they wish. Or any other fruit. Unless they turn it into apple juice. And then I've got a problem with it. Okay. And finally, the um, piece de resistance, the 20-ounce Coca-Cola. Although somehow I think that you could resist it. Oh, I definitely resist it. I haven't had a soda in probably a good 20 years. It's got 65 grams of carbohydrate, all of which are sugar, and this particular bottle is high fructose corn syrup because it's American Coke, not Mexican Coke, uh, but it doesn't matter. Okay, let's look more carefully at how fructose is metabolized in the body because this seems to be where the problem is. And you compare the way that we process fructose with ethanol alcohol. Right. Now, if I went in and got a drink at a bar, there would be ethanol, alcohol right. in it, right? Of course. Okay. So the way that I, the way that that is metabolized in my body is similar to how fructose is. Absolutely. Can the, you talk they're about virtually the same? Talk about that. Very simple. Where do you get alcohol from? Fermentation of fructose. It's called wine. The big difference between alcohol and sugar is that for alcohol, the yeast does the first step of metabolism, which is called glycolysis. For fructose, we do our own first step. But once that step is accomplished, then the metabolites go straight to the mitochondria. The mitochondria are the little energy-burning factories inside each of your cells that generate the energy that powers your body. When those mitochondria are overwhelmed and can't process as much of the onslaught as is coming, the mitochondria have no choice but to take the excess and divert it to a separate process which builds fat out of those metabolites. So basically your mitochondria turn sugar into fat when it's provided in excess. The point is, it doesn't matter if that's alcohol or sugar, that's what happens. And so what we're seeing worldwide is this epidemic of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It looks just like alcoholic fatty liver disease, and the reason is because the substrate is the same. And fatty liver is something other than fat around your midsection. Well, fat around your midsection and fatty liver go together. Fat around your midsection is what we call visceral fat, and it's one of the hallmarks of these chronic metabolic diseases, what we call metabolic syndrome. So I think fatty liver is the driver of all of this, and uh, I'm not alone. Let's go back to the liver, and what's right. key about this is that's where this sugar is metabolized. It's that's not in right. other cells, like glucose is. Right. Glucose is metabolized all over your body. Every cell in your body metabolizes glucose. So when you take in a glucose load, say two slices of white bread, that's a straight glucose load, 80% of that load 
will be metabolized by the other organs in your body, by the brain, by the lungs, by the heart, by virtually every organ in the body because every organ needs glucose to power it. Fructose, on the other hand, is only metabolized in the liver. And when that is in high dose, which is what happens, say, with that Coca-Cola, your liver can't process all of that. It's coming too fast. It is basically overwhelming your liver's capacity to be able to metabolize it. Let's say more about that, because what we're, what we're doing here is trying to understand why it is that sugar would even qualify as a toxin. Well, it is a toxin for two reasons. The first is because excess gets turned into liver fat, which makes your liver sick. And when your liver is sick, your pancreas has to make more insulin to make the liver do its job. That raises insulin levels all over the body. And excess insulin causes all sorts of problems. The most important one, of course, being weight gain, but it also causes high blood pressure, causes uh, cell division and proliferation, which can increase your risk for cancer. And we now know that when insulin is high in the brain, it causes your brain cells not to work right. And we think that this is a proximate cause of dementia. So that's a pretty important chronic toxin if it's causing pretty much all the chronic diseases that we are currently dying from. The second reason why fructose is such a problem is because it binds to proteins. And when it binds to proteins, it releases a little molecule of hydrogen peroxide. And hydrogen peroxide, of course, damages cells. Now, we use hydrogen peroxide on our skin to sterilize it to basically kill the bacteria. But if it happens inside your cell, that's kind of a problem. And that's another reason why fructose is a chronic dose-dependent toxin. Still, to say that sugar is a toxin, and I don't know if you would interchange it with the word poison. Toxin, poison. Uh, toxin is a biological poison. Okay. But isn't it true that it's the dosage makes the of poison? Of course. Paracelsus in 1537, one of the great scientists of, you know, uh, of the millennia, uh, said the dose determines the poison. And I couldn't agree more. Uh, the fact is that anything in excess can be a poison. Oxygen can cause retinopathy, you know, make, go, make you go blind. Water can cause seizures. Iron can cause your liver to fail. The difference is there's no abuse potential for any of those. There's no abuse potential for water. There's no abuse potential for oxygen. You can't even get extra oxygen unless you find an oxygen tank lying around. But there is abuse potential for fructose because fructose stimulates the reward center the same as alcohol, the same as cocaine, the same as nicotine, the same as any drug of abuse. It is weakly addictive. It is not strongly addictive. It's not heroin. But because it's everywhere, you can't escape it. And there are very specific uh, criteria for sugar addiction and sugar meets those criteria. What are you recommending on a policy level would you like to see sugar actually be classified as a toxin? Should it be a controlled substance the way alcohol and cigarettes are? No. I, I do think that we need some form of societal intervention. I think that some sort of government regulation of the food industry is going to become necessary. I don't see any way around it because the food industry has no impetus to change. So. People have talked about soda taxation. People have talked about other forms of regulation. I personally think carting kids for Coke would be a great idea. Um, I've been, you know, lambasted in the media for having said that. But the fact of the matter is, no kid needs a soda after school. It has no nutritive value. It is worse than empty calories. It is detrimental calories. It is a chronic dose-dependent hepatotoxin. And just like alcohol. Is alcohol a toxin? Of course it is. And we regulate it as such. Well, sugar satisfies all of the same criteria. So they can call it whatever they want. The bottom line is, it's still a problem. Robert Lustig, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Robert Lustig is an endocrinologist at the University of California, San Francisco. Coming up, a researcher who says that all the bitterness about sugar is an overreaction. We have health problems, but fructose is not the reason behind them. Plus why, if you're a mouse, you really need to cut back on soda. But does that health tip apply if you're a man? 
It's our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. Skeptic check. Got a sweet truth? I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hang on a second. Now, not that I'll drink this after listening to Robert Lustig's cautionary tale, but doggone it, I am thirsty, and this stuff does taste so good. Maybe just one sip. Of course, I'm going to exercise some restraint here, because more research has emerged that drinking soda is bad for you, at least if you're a mouse. Scientists from the University of Utah found dramatic consequences in their mice when they supplemented their daily diets with 25% more sugar. The human equivalent of that is about three extra cans of soda a day. This is not sugar that is intrinsically in foods such as fruits or vegetables. This is extra, extra, read all about it, sugar. The substance that biologist James Ruff and his colleagues added to mouse chow, that's something that humans recognize, sucrose, a mixture of those monosaccharides, glucose and fructose. And that's a natural added sugar diet that people get because that's what high fructose corn syrup is. It's a mixture of fructose and glucose monosaccharides and about a one-to-one ratio. High fructose corn syrup can and vary on that ratio, though. All right. So 25% extra sugar. Can you give me some idea of what that's equivalent to if that had been done to humans? I mean, what would you add to their diet to achieve that same augmentation? Yeah, if people were following, say, the 2,000-calorie recommended diet, that would be about three 12-ounce soft drinks a day. Well, that's, that's quite a bit, three extra sodas a day. Well, but that's assuming, right, that the rest of the diet is completely free of added sugar, which is not typically the case. Added sugar is in most processed foods, and it's actually difficult to get away from. And uh, how long did you run the experiment? I mean, how, for how long were they exposed to this extra sweetener? Yeah, exposure to the diet started at weaning, which for our mice is four weeks old. That's when they're essentially teenagers just becoming sexually mature. And then we continued to uh, feed them for 26 weeks. At that time, right, that's when they leave the caged environment and go into the semi-natural system, uh, which we sometimes refer to as the mouse barn, uh, where they compete against each other for resources and mates. All right, so... Uh, 26 weeks, that doesn't sound like a heck of a long time, but I guess for a mouse, that's a fair fraction of their lifetime, right? Yeah, you know, a standard lifetime estimate for a mouse are about a rule of thumbs a year. And so we feed them for 26 weeks, which is half of that. Um, and then we put them into the enclosures where we followed them for 32 more weeks. So essentially, this is a lifetime study on mice. Uh, what'd you find? Well, once we release the animals in the enclosure, we tend to ask three questions. Do the sugar-fed animals have as many offspring as controls? Do they acquire territories as readily? And do they live as long? And what we found was females that were on the added sugar diets experienced a mortality rate that was double controls. Male mice didn't show a mortality effect, but what they did show was a 25% reduction in reproductive output. And that was likely caused to a 25% reduction in their ability to hold and maintain a territory. Well, holding territory is something that the females look at and decide, is this the guy for me? And if he can't hold territory, he's off the list? Yeah, if a male mouse does not control the territory, females won't even look at them for mating. Wow. Okay. So the females died young, the males didn't reproduce very well because they didn't uh, have the ability to hold on to territory. Presumably, they were less aggressive. 
Uh, you know, it could be aggression, but, you know, we tend to think of aggression as the propensity to start a fight. What matters here is their, you know, real ability to compete over time. So it's not that they wouldn't, you know, try to win these fights or competitions over territory. It's that they could not. You know, they couldn't win once they engaged in them. What about the females? Why were they dying young? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a similar question, right? We don't know exactly why. But what we do know is that female mice in particular are really in an energetic crucible. You know, their cost of reproduction is incredibly high because they can be gestating a litter while they're actively nursing the previous litter, which can raise their metabolism upwards of 20 to 30%. And so the idea is, if there's something wrong with their energy homeostasis, it might be more likely to lead to mortality in females. Well, that's quite interesting. And the obvious question that people will bring to mind hearing this is that they've been reading about the rise in human cases of uh, so-called metabolic syndrome, Mm -hmm. too much sugar uh, leading to cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and so forth. Were any of these diseases apparent in these mice? So we did do a, a mouse physical, if you will. So when we were done with the dietary exposure, um, we looked at you know seven very common clinical endpoints that one would assume would be altered by sugar feeding. And it was really interesting what we found. You know, we looked at body weight. No difference in body weight between experimental and control animals. We looked at fasting blood measures that one would get taken at the doctor's office. Nothing in insulin, nothing in glucose, nothing in triglycerides. We did get two partial, uh, we got two positive hits. Total cholesterol was elevated in added sugar mice of both sexes. The other effect was that glucose clearance rate for sugar-fed females was decreased, implying that they were insulin resistant. And that's evidence that their glucose metabolism was impaired, and that could be part, I'm not saying it fully explains the mortality effects that we see in the enclosure, but it could be part of that mechanistic cascade that alters those physiological systems and leads to increased mortality. James, let me get this right. You increase the sugar in a mouse's diet. You don't really see the diseases apparently associated with human exposure to too much sugar, ingesting too much sugar, but you do see these other serious problems like loss of reproductive ability and death, both of which I would say are serious problems. I would agree with you. You know, other researchers have seen the fingerprints of these diseases in rodent models of sugar consumption. The difference is they're looking at doses of sugar that are 50% of calories, 60% of calories, upwards of 70% of calories. And you can get those effects in rodents at that level, and, and, and that's where the research has been focused. But when you bring that exposure level down to what people actually eat and you look for those things, you don't necessarily see them. I think at this point, the best assumption, if it's a bad for mice, it's bad for people, until we delve in and we get some mechanistic answers here that indicate it's a mouse-specific problem. Until we have evidence that it's a mouse-specific problem, the prudent choice is for people to be concerned about, about their sugar intake. James Ruff, we appreciate you uh, talking to us today. Hey, thank you so much. It was a great conversation. James Ruff is a biologist postdoc at the University of Utah. Seth, you want to take another sip of that soda? Well, I do and I don't. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so sugary diets are bad for mice. They shorten the lifetime of the females. They render the males feckless. But can we conclude that extra sugar, in particular the high fructose corn syrup in this soda here, is a serious health risk for humans? As James Ruff said, his mice didn't develop the sort of diseases collectively known to us as metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and so forth. However, he also said he couldn't rule out what might happen at higher doses. Now, earlier in the show, Robert Lustig was unequivocal about the dangers of fructose, and he's helped define the debate about sugar. But so has John Piper of St. Michael's Hospital at the University of Toronto. He and his team run systematic reviews of all available evidence on a problem, and they run clinical trials to assess diet and disease relationships. He says that calling sugar, fructose, a toxin, as Dr. Lustig does, is misleading. As are the animal studies on sugar, that maybe the results are mouse-specific, as biologist James Ruff himself put it. At any rate, says John Piper, don't single out fructose as the source of our ills. Carbs aren't the problem total calories are. John, Rob Lustig has made the case that sugar is a toxin. Would you classify it as such? 
Uh, no, I think that that is, is a bit extreme and it leads to extreme interpretations. I think fructose, certainly if it's over-consumed, has unhealthy effects. Um, there's no disputing that whatsoever. Uh, but I think at normal population levels of intake, at moderate levels of intake, it is not a toxin. But Dr. Lustig will go further than that. He points the finger at fructose in particular, and the problem is how it's metabolized in the liver. And how it is metabolized is why it is so such a serious health threat. Yes. And I mean, I, I have to say to Rob's uh, credit, I mean, that that is certainly the view of the science. And if you pick up any biochemistry textbook, that's the way we understand fructose to behave. It's metabolized differently than uh, glucose or other carbohydrates from which we derive glucose and can act as an unregulated, we call it, uh, substrate for making fat in the liver. We know that this to be true, certainly in terms of the biochemistry, and we know it to be true when we look at animal studies. But in humans, we don't actually uh, see that because there's probably some other checks and balances there that uh, limit that. So when we actually look in humans and we do very elegant, carefully designed studies where we label the carbons and the fructose with uh, stable isotopes, what we find is most of it actually doesn't go to fat. Uh, most of it actually goes to make uh, glucose and glycogen, uh, lactate or is oxidized. So we don't actually uh, see the increase in fat, uh, liver fat, that you would expect. So to be clear, how it's metabolized in the liver and animals is consistent with what Rob Lustig said, but how, yes. it's, me- but how it's metabolized in humans is, is not the same. It looks like that there is a difference in terms of comparative physiology. I just want to add one thing, which is that I think if you overconsume, if you're consuming more energy than or more calories than you need, then you can overwhelm uh, the mechanisms in place, and then you do make fat. But that's true with uh, any uh, overfeeding of carbohydrate. You make liver fat. So when we did our knowledge syntheses, if you like, our systematic reviews and meta-analyses, where we look at the totality of the evidence in humans, the best designed evidence, which is, comes from controlled trials where you can isolate the effect of fructose, we found when we looked across the endpoints and to address the issue of, of liver fat, that as long as you match for calories, you don't see any more liver fat with fructose than you do with glucose. Okay, so to be clear, when calories remain the same, That's right. uh, fructose has no unique harm to the body. That's what we're seeing. But the problem is with overconsumption, and isn't that the problem today, that sugar consumption is going up, high fructose corn syrup consumption is going up, and we're seeing all the companion diseases as a result of it, that these aren't ordinary days, these are extreme days of sugar consumption. Now, what I want to say is uh, absolutely there are people that are consuming too much. Uh, But to get to your question, are they really going up? Uh, And I think we have to look at that question carefully. Um, If we look at the best data we have, which is intake data, as opposed to availability data. Availability data is just the USDA data that shows how much is in the market versus intake data where people actually tell you how much they eat. When we look at intake data and we look at trends in intake data over the last 10 years, for example, added sugars has come down a little more than 20%. Yet, we still see that people tend to overconsume calories in general. There's been reciprocal increases in other carbohydrates, protein and fat. And we still see that people are gaining weight and we still see an increase in diabetes. Problem with that data is it's not adjusted for energy. Uh, or sedentary behaviors or a lot of other things that went up. So I think we'd be careful in interpreting it. But if we put those criticisms aside and look at it, we actually see is when we look now at data, we see that there's a decrease. And in other populations like in the UK or in Canada and Australia, there's actually been a decrease in sugar even uh, over that same period. So not the last 10 years as it in the States, but even uh, from the 70s uh, to the present, yet there's still been an increase in overweight and obesity. So I think it's much more complex than that. We have to be careful using or invoking these, what we call ecological data, which are very seductive to say, oh, this is going up, so it must correlate then with overweight and obesity to infer causation because it's it's much more complex than that. So John, you maybe raised an eyebrow at the causation between uh, high sugar consumption and obesity. But Mm. what about the metabolic syndrome that Rob Lustig refers to? It's not just obesity, it's high blood pressure, it's diabetes, and so forth. Yeah, I think this is a a really good point. So we don't see a relationship for total sugar or sucrose or fructose. Um, A special case is sugar-sweetened beverages. So there you do see a signal uh, where you do see an increase in overweight and obesity, an increase in heart disease, increased incidence in stroke. So you do see a signal quite consistently for sugar-sweetened beverages, but it's a, it's, a, it's a small signal, which suggests that maybe that's a special case. John Stephen Piper, thank you very much for speaking with us. Uh, you're very welcome. My pleasure. John Stephen Piper is the Knowledge Synthesis Lead of the Toronto 3D Knowledge Synthesis and Clinical Trials Unit, St. Michael's Hospital, University of Toronto, Canada. Okay, feeling confident that at least those potato chips are sugar-free? Well, take a look at the list of ingredients on the back. You might need a dictionary. There's more sugar in salty foods and vice versa. 
than you might imagine. Next, how the giant food companies hook us. It's Skeptic Check, Got a Sweet Truth? Even before you heard all the debate and the research on the health effects of sugar, you may have already been trying to cut back. But are your efforts being sabotaged by, well, crypto sugar, sweet stuff hidden in places where you don't expect it? Sure, you can gird yourself and march right past the cookie aisle, the cupcake table, that endless freezer of ice cream. But are you also going to bypass the shelves of bread and crackers and the rows of canned vegetables? Well, why don't we look at the label on this can of peas I happen to have here. Ingredients. Peas. You should give them a chance. (laughs) Yes. Water. Sugar. Well, okay, but at least sugar is in the open here. But believe me, it can go undercover. Sugar has a number of aliases. Treacle, barley malt, sorghum syrup, corn syrup, muscovado, dehydrated cane juice, molasses, demerara sugar. 56 aliases at last count. It would make any undercover agent jealous. Rice syrup, ethyl maltol. Dextran, sugar is not sugar, only tucked away lactose, in almost all processed food. Companies are in competition with each other to add as much as possible to keep you loyal to their product. Reporter Michael Moss spent years uncovering just how they do it for his book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. Oh, yeah, salt and fat are big problems, too. But sticking with the sweet stuff, Michael. Now, you've discovered that it's difficult to cut out sugar because it's in stuff like breads that we don't even think of as sweet, right? It seems that way. And if you hit on one of the big concerns of nutrition experts out there, which is the march of sweetness from the aisle in the grocery store, we'd expect it, the ice cream or candy aisle around the store. What this has done, and as you mentioned, breads are now sweetened, so they have a bliss point for sweetness for people. Low-fat yogurt can have as much sugar in it as ice cream. Pasta sauces can have the equivalent of a couple of Oreo cookies in a tiny half cup Observing. And what this has done is taught us to expect sweetness in everything we eat. And so the problem comes when you go to the far end of the grocery store where everybody says we should be spending more time eating fresh vegetables and fruits. You're going to be getting some bitter notes and your brain is going, whoa, wait a minute. Where's the sweet here? Yeah. Well, you use the term bliss point. Uh, and if there's one term that's come to be associated with your reporting, I guess that's it. The bliss point, that's what, the optimum amount of sugar from the food processing industry's point of view? I mean, what's meant by optimum if that's what it is? The perfect amount of sweetness that will send consumers over the moon and their products flying off the shelves. It was coined by an icon in the, uh, a legend rather, in in the processed food industry, Howard Moskowitz, trained in experimental psychology at Harvard. Howard is a master at formulating foods to achieve the perfect sweetness. Well, they've also studied what the bliss point might be for uh, children, and that's different than for adults, is it not? Yeah, I mean, we are all hardwired for sugar. If you learned the tongue map when you went to school that said something like, look, the, you know, you taste sweetness at the tip of your tongue, it's actually wrong. Or is that the data was misinterpreted? You taste sweetness in every one of the 10,000 taste buds in your mouth. And actually, they even you have taste receptors for sweetness going all the way down into your gut. But for kids, it's even stronger. Their brains, when they taste sugar, see calories and growing bodies and instant, you know, growth. And so that's why kids are especially drawn towards sugar. All right. Maybe I'm already too cynical, but I assume that the food processing industry has adjusted its products to uh, comply with this finding that the kids can tolerate more sweetness. They want more sweetness. There's no question that foods in the grocery store that are aimed, targeted, marketed toward children are sweeter than those uh, for adults. What you're describing sounds like a, a kind of an escalating war of uh, sweetness, of sugar additives. I mean, the companies are obviously competitive with one another. They have to hook their customers. They need to hook their taste buds. 
Can you give me just a, an idea of how that competition plays out? You know, there is a war-like atmosphere at some of these companies. I spend a lot of time with the president, former president of Coca-Cola for North America named Jeffrey Dunn. For 20 years, he was one of their fiercest warriors. The language they use in fighting their chief uh, rival, Pepsi, for space on the shelf is very warlike. They talk about their best customers, not as customers, but as heavy users. And they spend their waking hours plotting how to gain an edge over Pepsi in the stores and especially in convenience stores. But, you know, I have to say, I don't view the processed food industry as this evil empire that has marched upon us to make us obese or otherwise ill. The problem lies in their collective zeal to do what companies do, which is make as much money as possible by selling as much product as possible and making that product as utterly irresistibly alluring as possible. I watch my colleagues reach for the sugar packets that have the unbleached sugar in them. <laughs> Any benefit in that other than making them feel better? Not that I've heard of or been able to pin down. And, you know, that gets to this other point. It's a lot of drive now by the processed food industry, the giants, to sell health to us. Um, you see the word fruit on many products around the, corn, around the grocery store where they just have a little bit of fruit juice added to it. As a moniker of health, yogurt, you know, became the best example of something that just like meant total great health to people. And as I mentioned, some of it can have as much sugar in it as ice cream. And so you need to be wary whenever you see on the front of labels anything that alludes to this product being healthier for you. Because often when you turn to the fine print, you're going to see a more grim reality. Well, you talk about how the, the companies are jockeying. And You've had access to the files and conversations of key people in these companies. In, in the case where these folks were not being whistleblowers, they nonetheless shared with you some of their, I, I would call them, company secrets. I mean, the man from Oscar Mayer in Madison, Wisconsin, who showed you his files on the advantages of using real versus artificial pepperoni in kids' Lunchables. What would their motivation have been? Well, the, I think the reason they did that is that starting even before talking to them, I had access to a trove of insider documents that put me at the table of the largest companies as they were formulating, plotting, planning new product development. And that enabled me, those documents enabled me then to identify the key people in the companies to talk to and then convince them to talk to me and open up and reveal any more secrets. I think it was just a, you know, a fundamental journalistic stance, which is basically, I'm going to write about this anyway, but I really want to hear your perspective and I really want to step in your shoes and figure out why you guys have done what you've done. Well, they, I mean, they're playing on an evolutionary craving. Sugar is an evolutionary thing, is it not? I mean, it's not news that we love sugar. Mother's milk is sweet after all. Do we know what happens to our brains when we eat sugar? I mean, does our brain say, yeah, that's a good thing to do, keep doing it? It's pretty straightforward. And I spent, look, there's, there's no word that the industry hates more than the A word, addiction. But the lingo that they use to describe the allure of the foods is every bit of it's revealing. They talk about craveability, snackability. Uh, my favorite is the word more-ishness, as in M-O-R-E-ishness. These are not English majors. These are scientists and marketers. <laughs> but to really understand what happens to the brain, I spent time with Nora Volkow, the head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. She's a neuro neuroscientist who has studied how the brain reacts both to drugs, narcotics, and to highly palatable, highly sweet, highly fat foods. And she's concluded by watching how the brain reacts that for many people, the sweetest, fattest foods will cause what they call in the business patterns of compulsive intake every bit as much as some narcotics. And it gets worse for those people who feel that they're addicted to certain foods because you can't just go cold turkey like you can with narcotics. You have to eat, and the marketing is in your face all the time. So it's 
an addiction, but on the other hand, I don't it's know. It's a necessary addiction, yeah, right? Yeah, I was going to say, this is not an addiction you can get out of. Cold turkey or turkeys of any temperature. And, yeah. and also, you know, and, and there's, look, and you have to remember, too, is that there's nothing inherently wrong with salt, sugar, or fat. I mean, it defines my diet, many of our diets to a certain degree. It's the overconsumption. And the real sort of key here and sort of looking at this is to, you know, as the question, to what extent has the processed food industry, even subliminally, taken steps? or knowingly created products that will drive people to overconsume salt, sugar, and fat. Certainly their own dependence, it's quite clear, on salt, sugar, fat as the holy trinity is intractable. And that was one of the most surprising things for me. There was apparently a study involving rats and Fruit Loops. Uh, I hope they were laboratory Fruit Loops. And it turned out that the furry part of this experiment <laughs> would, would override their own survival instincts to get at those Fruit Loops. Yeah, the scientists uh, put a little pile of Fruit Loops in the center of the cage where rats did not want to go. They liked the dark corners, and they were so appealing to them that they would rush out and gulp those Fruit Loops down. That was actually the first study. This is back in the 60s. The first study to sort of give some proof to the notion that we would we would risk bodily harm, in their case, their fear of death or whatever, to grasp for sweetness. Michael, what's when you boil it right down, how good is the evidence that sugar is making us sick? Ah, uh, so the numbers are pretty staggering. Let's start with salt, if you, if, you, if you don't mind. We're up at about 3,500 milligrams of sodium, the sodium part of salt, per person per day. We should be down at least to 2,300. A lot of people should probably be at 1,500. We're eating, fats are measured as a percentage of your calorie intake. We're at about 11%, up to 12% on average per person. We should be down at 7%. Cheese, for example, our consumption of cheese has tripled in the past few decades to 33 pounds per person. And we're at about, conservatively estimated, we're about 70 pounds of sugar per person per year. But here's the tricky part. And sugar is one of the big holes on the nutrition label that health advocates are fighting for. When you look on the label, it'll tell you how many grams of sugar is in the product, but it won't give you a recommended maximum. That's the only one that they don't do that. There's been a big political fight over that. But if you listen to the American Heart Association, the amount of sugar we should be eating is way, way, way less than that. So what's being done? You, you open your book with a description of an unprecedented meeting in 1999 between some of the heads of the world's largest food companies, Coca-Cola, Nabisco, General Mills, and so on. They were there to address at least the obesity epidemic, which, of course, is also tied to disease. It seemed like a promising meeting. What came of that? And up in front of them was one of the meeting organizers. It wasn't a white coat researcher or a public health advocate. It was none other than one of their own, a senior executive of Kraft named Michael Mudd, armed with 114 slides. He lays at their feet responsibility, not only for the obesity crisis, but for diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease. He even links processed food products to several types of cancer. He pleads with them to collect start doing the right thing by consumer health, by dialing down the formulas on the products, by lessening their own dependence, especially on those three ingredients. He stops talking, upstands, probably one of the most respected of the CEOs, a gentleman named Stephen Sanger, the head of General Mills. And he very forcefully makes the point that, look, we already pay attention to consumers' needs. If they want something that's low-fat, we offer them something that's low-fat. Low-sugar, we've got it somewhere in the grocery store there. And we're not only obligated in meeting the obligations of consumers, but we're beholden to stockholders as well. So there is no way we're going to start making products that aren't utterly tasty as well. The meeting ended, and they went back to business as usual. I assume these gentlemen are all fully aware of what happened to big tobacco. They don't want the same thing to happen to them, I'm sure. So what do we do about this? I mean, you know, New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg has tried to restrict the selling of large cups of soda. He hasn't succeeded in that. To what extent do you think this is something that the state or federal governments should get involved with? 
You know, I asked that question to a really interesting person. He was the former CEO of Philip Morris, which plays a big role in the book because Philip Morris in the 80s became the largest food manufacturer in North America. A lot of people have forgotten that uh, when it acquired General Foods and then Kraft. And many of the documents I got, were, you know, entailed the interaction between the tobacco executives and the food division managers and some really surprising things happened. But I asked him recently, what about this notion of government regulation? He said, Michael, I'm no fan of government intervention and regulation, as you know. But you have to realize one thing, that the processed food industry, these giants you're writing about, are so fiercely competitive that I actually think that, and also beholden to Wall Street, that I actually think it might behoove them to look at government intervention as a way of giving them cover from the 800-pound gorilla in this equation, and that is Wall Street. Every time one of these companies does try to do the right thing by consumers, and they have over the years, Wall Street is there breathing down their neck, looking at revenue streams, profit levels. Hey, guys, time and time again, there's been examples. Campbell's Soup, a great company, recently took some salt out of one tiny line of its soups, and investors almost just hiccuped, and Campbell's Soup turned around and added the salt back in. Michael Moss, thank you so very much for a truly sweet interview. Nice talking to you. Michael Moss is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist at The New York Times. He is the author of Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. Okay, it's your turn to be skeptical of us. Sometimes big-picture science, yes, makes an error. And our quick-eared listeners catch what we don't. That was the case in our Sounds Abound show, according to one listener, when we mentioned the birthplace of Neil Armstrong. Uh, to whom am I speaking? My name is Joe Bruscotter. Well, hello, Joe. I, I understand you have a beef about the program. Yes, you mispronounced the name of a northwest Ohio town incorrectly. Now, where are you calling from that you would know that? I'm calling from Delaware, Ohio, just north of Columbus. Well, I believe we did mention the town in which Neil Armstrong was born. And checking our program, I find that we pronounced it Wapakonita. Is that wrong? Uh, from what I understand, yes, that is incorrect. <laughs> well, tell us what we should have said. Wapakoneta. 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 All right, and we said Wapakoneta. Well, doggone it, did we offend anyone? Not that I'm aware of. My cousin says that that is actually more accurate to the Native American pronunciation. I see. Well, this is once again a Native American name, right? Yes. And Neil Armstrong was born in that town. Yes, he was. I understand you're a big fan of the Neil Armstrong Museum. Absolutely. I went to many field trips there as a kid and took my children there just two years ago. And I could understand, Joe, then, why you're sensitive about us mangling the birthplace of one of your heroes, for sure. I want to thank you for getting in touch with the show. Hey, thanks much. You guys do a great job. Good to talk with you, Joe. Thanks so much, and keep up the great work. You can hear the original segment that Joe refers to at BigPictureScience.org. And if you catch us making an error, mispronouncing the name of your birth town or worse, email us and let us know, BigPictureScience at SETI.org. This we are sure about. The show wouldn't be possible without Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. And also the support of Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Skeptic Check. Got a sweet truth? Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org.